Welcome to QTalks, the podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Teller. And I'm Shreya, and we're your host for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we are talking to Mark Shmulevich, Senior VP at Tiger, an AI software company in Singapore, and also the founding director of the Zimmern Institutes in Israel. He has also been the Deputy Minister of IT in Russia. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show with us. So to start off, could you give us an overview of your background? Hello. Hi, Tele. Hi, Shreya. Hi, Carl. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, uh, very briefly, uh, I'm a, a former rocket scientist. I have a PhD in uh, computer science uh, from Russia when I was born. And then uh, uh, my first steps in my career were in uh, space technology sector, where I started as a researcher and then uh, continued as a, a business development executive. And after that, I had various roles uh, um, in the private sector, in uh, all related to innovation. I spent two years in the government, and uh, currently uh, I'm an executive in a AI company called Tiger, and I also run a uh, project headquartered in Israel uh, devoted to commercialization of research. Wow, that is an incredible amount to to unpick there and we're spoilt for choice really for what to talk about um maybe maybe you can give us some of your career highlights so far it's hard for me to assess uh, which ones are highlights uh, but the timeline was uh, uh, phd student first uh, and then uh, uh, i spent uh, five years with uh, the uh, largest uh, space uh, technology corporation uh, in Russia, Russian space systems, uh, working uh, first as a researcher in such areas as uh, remote sensing and uh, satellite navigation, uh, and in general, uh, satellites and also international uh, collaboration in uh, these areas of technology, and then moved to business development. Uh, I think the highlight during that time was uh, that uh, I was uh, involved in uh, creating the first joint venture between uh, US and the Russia in the area of uh, satellite navigation where uh, we uh, took a technology initially from a large uh, U.S. company, Trimble, and then uh, we adjusted it to serve the needs of the customers in Russia, and uh, then the joint venture was uh, doing that uh, in the territory of Russia and uh, CIS countries uh, around Russia. Uh, After that, uh, the next highlight was the Russian Quantum Center, the first uh, center for research in uh, quantum technology and engineering. I was uh, the first director for development. Um, after that, uh, I was uh, deputy minister um, in uh, the government responsible for some of the support of the IT and innovation industries between 2012 and uh, 2013. Uh, in 2014, I joined uh, a data protection company, Ekronis as a chief strategy and operations officer and uh, moved to Singapore, um, where I am now. Uh, and then I had a few changes. Uh, so the next uh, um, highlights were just a few years ago where I uh, switched effort onto another business in artificial intelligence called Tiger. And at the same time, uh, launched uh, the project called Zimin Institutes um, that uh, builds uh, 
institutes at top universities and helps uh, uh, great research projects uh, become uh, uh, technologies and uh, companies in the real world. That is a long list of highlights. So just picking out one thing from that. So obviously you've worked in the government, um, in IT and innovation, and then you've later moved on to the private industry. So could you kind of compare and contrast your experiences with both and what kind of impact you've been able to have in each? Absolutely. I think the environment is very different. Although the domain I was working in, in both private and government sector was uh, more or less the same, I was uh, uh, trying to build a, the better ecosystem for innovation businesses or just to, to build such businesses. Um, the environment differed in several ways. Uh, primarily, the speed of changes is different. Um, government is, uh, on average, significantly slower in terms of uh, making decisions and implementing decisions. It's not necessarily bad, I cannot say that, because in many cases, uh, you need to think five times and then uh, do the action. Uh, and it is very much justified that you do not do that action very fast. But I would say that this is uh, the biggest difference that you can notice. Um, another difference is uh, the amount of experimentation. In uh, all innovation business, especially in startup phases, but uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it, it relates to all the stages of uh, technology innovation businesses, uh, you need to experiment, you, you need to do A-B testing of various things. In many cases, you try to fail fast to try something else and uh, um, after this uh, sequence of uh, failures, uh, finally find something that works. Uh, in the government, you cannot afford that. So the whole approach to how you structure the work is completely different. Uh, it's more like a significant consulting arrangement with uh, minor actions and then uh, more actions later. So uh, summarizing, the environment is very different. And, uh, thus, the impact is also very different. You approach achieving this impact in uh, different ways. You need more time in the government. For instance, my tenure for uh, around two years, uh, I believe it was uh, short enough. And if there is uh, the next tenure one day, uh, I would probably want it to be longer. Um, at the same time, the final goal is the same. You need to see the changes to see the results. So I'm interested in uh, in what you're saying, that the differences exist as a matter of necessity, basically, in terms of how the government and the private sector can, can work. Um, what are their differing impacts or their differing roles in the space of technology innovation? I think the major role of the government is uh, uh, creating the best possible conditions that uh, on the one hand will not distract the business too much on the other way on the other hand will uh, create enough uh, protection and uh, security and uh, motivation for this business to to work and uh, to show the best they can do and this is a very difficult task because uh, uh, what the government can do is uh, Number one, regulation. So uh, you can 
allow something to happen, you can disallow something to happen. And the other thing is uh, the government can uh, uh, like manually uh, set up some uh, processes, which is uh, a very tricky thing. And uh, in the ideal situation, you you never do that. You just uh, create the right set of the legislation that works. In order to come up with this uh, set of measures, you need to work extensively with the industry. Say, during my tenure, uh, when I joined the government in uh, um, 2012, uh, probably the first six months were a lot about uh, interaction directly with industry to understand uh, which measures uh, uh, to prioritize. Uh, at the time we created a special expert council with uh, the leaders of uh, 20 to 30 various uh, organizations, uh, not, not only a business, but also infrastructure players like technology parks, accelerators, uh, VC funds, universities, um, and then uh, at the end, the final list of measures was rather short because initially you have hundreds of ideas, but uh, you don't want to do anything that can harm. So you subtract and then uh, you cross out and again and again, and then you come up with uh, something that should really work. And apart from how you know they interplay and how the government can create a good environment for IT advances, so we'd also like to talk about how, you know, when these advances do happen, for example, how they can actually be implemented in government. So the work you do with Taiga, I understand, has to do with automating documentation with AI. So how come we haven't seen widespread adoption of technologies like that in the, within the government, which seems like a straightforward thing to do possibly, but doesn't seem to have happened so much? Yeah, right. My uh, perception is also that uh, it has not happened much yet, uh, but I definitely see that uh, many governments are on the way there. So we haven't seen uh, a lot of government automation just yet because uh, it has started not very long ago. And uh, uh, again, there is inertia. So uh, we should always keep in mind that the majority of governments uh, and uh, even those governments that are faster than the other ones are usually not as fast as uh, you may expect uh, uh, being uh, um, in business yourself. Uh, they just need time. Uh, the other reason is that uh, the amount of information everywhere is uh, growing exponentially. You, you probably know that, uh, say, when IBM uh, calculated and estimated, uh, I think it was in 2017, um, how much of the world's data had been created so in just a couple of years before the date, it turned out to be, uh, I think, uh, 89% or 90%, so about uh, nine-tenths of all the data were created at the time. And uh, the government is not an exception. The amount of uh, the data they need to process is growing, and it means that uh, the attention uh, you, uh, you you uh, allocate to uh, optimizing uh, uh, the data processing, information extraction uh, also increases. And then uh, uh, with some inertia, with some gap in time, the demand for automation also goes up. There are a few more things uh, that can uh, contribute to the explanation why we haven't seen uh, enough adoption of AI in the government yet. Uh, for instance, uh, 
probably 95 cases out of the 100, you're not creating anything uh, uh, from the from scratch. It's not the greenfield. There is uh, uh, some legacy, and uh, there are people who have been working with this legacy solutions uh, for a long time. So uh, the change of mentality is needed. And I'd say that today, um, if you compare to maybe five, seven years ago, uh, the situation has dramatically changed because in the vast majority of uh, government uh, agencies uh, throughout the world, there are some agents, uh, agents of change that uh, work on this new mentality and uh, new approach to work, uh, but they still need time. And uh, it doesn't mean that the, the culture has already changed. Finally, uh, there are some issues with the procurement process and uh, changing these uh, legacy approaches to, to working with information also uh, is tricky sometimes uh, from, uh, when you look at it from the procurement and legal point of view. So it will also take time to change that. Okay, and just to end on the government versus private, um, so you've given us an insight into the, you know, the different ways they operate. So for someone at the beginning of their career, would you necessarily recommend one over the other? There might be several ways to uh, succeed. And uh, I think that uh, it's quite difficult to give a general recommendation. Still, on average, I believe that if uh, you work in the private sector first, and then you move to the government sector permanently or for a part of your career later, uh, you have more chances to succeed uh, in your career overall compared uh, to uh, the other approach when you start from the government work. Uh, there are several reasons to that. Uh, one of the reasons is that uh, it very often in the government, uh, you have uh, very important tasks and uh, potentially impactful things to work on and uh, you also have uh, a limited number but good resources to tap on at the same time the tools the methodology and the approaches are not something that uh, you typically learn just there and it is uh, more uh, more typical for those people who succeed that they bring these tools and methodologies from their previous experience. So they bring that knowledge in and they need to get that experience uh, somewhere. So um, one of the best way to get that experience is to, to work in uh, uh, business yourself. Um, and uh, out of various uh, uh, approaches that you can try as, a, a, as, as uh, uh, the person uh, in the first uh, years of your career, I would prioritize uh, uh, doing as much as possible yourself. Uh, for instance, uh, in the same logic, um, I think it's quite important uh, to go to MBA, not after two years of experience in business, but maybe after 10 years, because this MBA will be much more efficient for you. And uh, similarly here, if you get more exposure to, to various uh, business processes, to uh, various uh, ways how other people achieve 
success. You can see a lot of things yourself and try a lot of things yourself. Then you will be better off trying to pick the methods that work best when you are already in the government. So nothing is more valuable than your own experience. Okay, I think this has been a really useful and interesting conversation on looking at the government and private sector. If we now move towards talking about uh, translating research into sort of commercial products, maybe you can give us a flavor of, of your role in this space. There is a company uh, called uh, Vion now, and before that it was called Vimpelcom which is a large uh, telco. Uh, the company is very well known uh, in Russia, uh, where it was born, because it was the first company that went public in 1990s after the Soviet Union fell. So it got listed at uh, New York Stock Exchange. And uh, that was a tremendous success. So what is interesting is that uh, there were two uh, core founders of this company. One of them, Dmitry Zimin, uh, is a legend in the uh, Russia now, he was a radio electronics engineer during the Soviet Union times. And then uh, when the Soviet Union fell, he, together with his uh, U.S. co-founder, started this uh, company, uh, basically not knowing anything about the business yet. So uh, cutting long story short, uh, when the company got listed, uh, he became a rich person and uh, he gave almost all the money he earned uh, to charity. Uh, there is a foundation called Zimin Foundation, and uh, there are several sub-foundations under it that support uh, uh, support uh, uh, development of uh, people, support talents in uh, science, uh, in culture, and uh, in the civil society. So uh, in 2013, uh, Dr. Dmitry Zimin invited me to the board of uh, one of these foundations, it's called Dynasty Foundation, and I served on that board for some time. Uh, several years later, I suggested the project myself, which is called Zimin Institutes, with uh, the following idea. There are so many interesting uh, and potentially impactful research projects in the laboratories that never see the light of the real world because uh, uh, the priority is given to the uh, academic excellence and uh, uh, there is no translation, no commercialization and uh, no real technology is created. Uh, I suggested to start a new project that we now call Zimin Institutes to partner with uh, the universities where we believe there is a large number of such hidden gems in research and uh, try to help them in various ways, by funding, by working like a venture studio at later stages that help them to get more of such brilliant ideas to the stage of uh, at least a patent uh, which is uh, um, licensed out and commercialized uh, or uh, a company that uh, uh, changes uh, how we live in the real world to the better. So we started that in... Uh, uh, late 2017, approximately three years ago, with uh, the first institute in Israel at Tel Aviv University called uh, uh, Zimin Institute, institute for Engineering Solutions Advancing Better Life. Uh, and uh, that institute uh, uh, primarily supports uh, medical device engineering projects. And then uh, the second institute was launched in the U.S. Uh, with the Arizona State University, their School of Engineering to work on smart and sustainable living in cities. 
now we're working on the third uh, institute uh, that is going to open in Israel again, and it will be devoted to AI and machine learning uh, technologies. So each institute uh, finds uh, and supports uh, on competitive basis uh, three, four, five projects every year. Uh, they're first on the research stage. So uh, since we're quite early in the process, we just have several projects that are being commercialized now. But in the steady stage, I assume uh, we will have a funnel when we have hundreds of projects supported uh, through the network of the main institutes and then maybe 30% of them will commercialize and then maybe half of them will uh, become rather successful uh, uh, and uh, impactful companies. And out of those half, uh, we will probably see a few breakthrough projects in the areas we work in, such as uh, a new healthcare or smart cities or AI implemented uh, um, in, in uh, some areas of uh, quality of life improvement. And for, from the point of view of the scientists, how do they juggle their research with running a company? Because I'm sure although some of the priorities and goals are aligned, there can be a bit of a split. And, you know, when they found this company, what kind of levels of involvement do they have? Because, you know, if you're running a company as a CEO and doing full-time research on the side, I'm sure that can take a toll. Do some people just you know, assemble a team and then act as an advisor on the side. What does that make up look like? My experience shows that uh, the situation when uh, the scientists uh, themselves uh, moves to an executive role uh, in the company and runs the company uh, are not very successful on average. It might be successful, but on average, we prioritize uh, the cases when uh, uh, the scientists uh, work on the technology uh, they might uh, become a CTO of the company, but uh, uh, usually even that does not happen because at some point of time when they are ready to spin off uh, the, 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 the company, uh, they find the team, the executive team, and uh, we, we also help with that. And this team takes uh, the majority of the uh, business tasks while the uh, researcher, researchers uh, remain advisors slash CTO, um, and maybe some other roles. But uh, we, we, we prefer when uh, uh, everyone is focused on what they can do best, although there are exceptions, and it's also one of the goals to spot these exceptions earlier in the process. But if uh, you don't see that the current uh, uh, group of people and what they do uh, might be as successful in business as they are in the laboratory, we believe that the better way is to help find uh, the complementary team that will work together with them. And from your experience, what do you find to be the biggest barriers to research that you think is really quite promising um, for that to be commercialized successfully? I think that uh, not many researchers uh, are really excited about commercializing their research. And it's important to understand the psychology and the motivation of uh, uh, each uh, role. Um, in many cases, if you prioritize your academic career, then uh, there is a conflict uh, between uh, focusing on uh, uh, making uh, this uh, career as successful and as possible and progressing as fast as possible and refocusing 
even if it is a partial refocus on uh, commercializing your research, because in any case, it takes time. So what we found uh, is that first, in several geographies, uh, it's quite clear that the uh, uh, relative share of researchers that want to see their research translated and uh, uh, helping people in the real world and maybe becoming a successful business is significantly higher than in other geographies. Uh, I'd say that uh, in the US, uh, the share of such research is rather high, but we were impressed uh, by Israel, uh, where uh, this uh, share seems to be even higher. I would say, based on my experience, out of uh, 10 researchers uh, that uh, I met uh, in the top uh, uh, Israeli universities, at least three or maybe four uh, not only want to do something in the commercial uh, space, but uh, they have already tried to do something. And there are quite a lot of cases when uh, these researchers uh, uh, dream about uh, uh, being uh, a serial entrepreneur in addition to their um, academic uh, career. So I think this is amazing and uh, it's very important. Uh, well, we know if you are not too much excited about something, then you have not many chances to achieve that. So I'd say the right motivation is uh, the main thing, and uh, uh, absence of such motivation is the main stopper. If you have this motivation, then uh, uh, you need to be able to, to uh, communicate with uh, people outside of your um, close circle and outside of your uh, domain of the academic domain, because uh, in any case, you will need to build a network uh, and uh, effectively communicate with that network. Network consisting of people who are very different from the ones uh, uh, who you usually work with in your lab. So uh, all in all, I think uh, it's much more about soft skills and motivation than about uh, knowledge and hard skills. And just to follow up on that, have you found any particular sectors to be more challenging than others in in finding this motivation uh, for commercialization? We haven't looked at all sectors. Uh, we have uh, specifically focused uh, on a few sectors first, and uh, the uh, top priority for now is uh, anything related to healthcare and medicine. I truly believe that uh, uh, so much innovation is going to happen in this sector in the next uh, years and the next decade that uh, uh, it, should, it should be our priority. And also the impact is uh, probably most significant, the impact on how we're going to live and how happy and healthy we're going to be. So in this space, medical engineering is a very fruitful uh, topic for research translation commercialization. Uh, usually people working in engineering understand uh, uh, very well um, how to build a prototype and uh, uh, they seem to be fast enough in uh, uh, planning and uh, implementing the transition from uh, academia to, uh, to business. So we have found that uh, engineering teams and multidisciplinary teams uh, containing people uh, from life sciences uh, or healthcare or biology or medicine me domains. So uh, these teams plus engineering teams uh, 
uh, are very, very good in uh, commercializing uh, their research. So I would say this is the first focus. But uh, on the other hand, we have not uh, uh, looked at everything. So it's highly likely that uh, in a couple of years from now, we will discover another domain where we also see uh, the efficiency of the same level as we see in this uh, mix of uh, engineering and medicine. Fantastic. And perhaps uh, given my personal background and interests, uh, is there a particular success story that you're able to able to share with the audience? Yes, it's still quite an early stage. Uh, so the uh, disclaimer here is that uh, um, I'm... I'm I'm not thinking about them as uh, complete success stories right now, but uh, there are a few things that I believe are uh, on the way to becoming tremendous success. Uh, for instance, um, a project of uh, uh, Taldvir, a uh, research at Tel Aviv University, um, which we supported back in 2018, is devoted to um, growing uh, uh, cardiac patches from the stem, stem cells uh, of uh, humans and then using these uh, patches uh, during uh, heart surgeries. Um, this, is, this technology is uh, uh, quite unique because uh, first you use the stem cells of the same uh, people and then secondly you use 3D printing to create this uh, uh, patch uh, part of the heart uh, like a living heart in the laboratory. And uh, the expectation is that uh, the doctors uh, will be able to uh, perform the whole surgery much faster and more efficiently uh, because of that. Um, this project uh, was uh, supported by several organizations, uh, including the Men Institutes, uh, and we see very good traction. We see that the team is focused uh, last year uh, the company uh, they have for commercializing this uh, uh, technology started working with uh, the German uh, pharmaceutical uh, giant uh, buyer to uh, um, harness uh, this uh, 3D printed uh, tissue technology in uh, the drug screening process by Bayer. Uh, and then there are also a few uh, trials with uh, the hospitals. So I think this is uh, quite a promising project. Um, a bit in the earliest stage, there is another project we supported in Israel where uh, the team uses virtual uh, reality to provide uh, positive behavioral changes. And uh, the first trials are very efficient. So um, we can see that this combination of uh, VR technologies uh, can be used very efficiently to, uh, um, to, to implement uh, the changes uh, to the behavior that doctors wanted to be able to implement uh, for the people who need that. But uh, without the tool, VR, it was not as efficient. Uh, finally, uh, for instance, there is a company that was just formed not very long ago to commercialize uh, um, an algorithm uh, which was uh, developed primarily to uh, find and analyze uh, some uh, cardiac activation patterns. But then the team, uh, led by uh, uh, Dan Raviv uh, from Tel Aviv, uh, realized that uh, similar algorithms uh, can be applied to completely different things. For instance, uh, uh, understanding whether um, the video 
is uh, and, and the movements of different objects in the video is uh, realistic or maybe it is a fake video. So uh, they are working on uh, uh, taking the same algorithm they used for uh, completely medical purposes and then uh, uh, moving it outside of uh, the medical domain to a wider uh, set of a potential application. They have created a company to do that. And perhaps um, just one last thing um, in the field of translating research. So obviously, you know, from your own background, you have a lot of experience with AI, both in the private industry and I'm sure um, looking for promising research projects in AI that could have um, a real impact um, in the world. So from your own point of view, what do you think is, you know, the horizon for deep tech innovation in the next few years, in the next five to 10 years, for example? A lot of things. Again, if I pick just a few, uh, medicine will be uh, on top of my priorities. I think that uh, the way how we treat humans and uh, keep ourselves healthy is uh, way outdated just because uh, we're not using the ability to quantify uh, what's happening, to track various parameters constantly. Uh, we're just not using that ability for now. And the, the vast majority of interactions between uh, uh, us and uh, doctors are when something happens and then you go to a doctor and then the doctor does some tests and then uh, they look at you, they just see the snapshot. They, ha they have a snapshot of what's happening right now, plus some minor information from your past. And, and, and this is uh, not the best way to, um, to cure. A, a much better way seems to be um, if you are able to uh, measure and then process various parameters uh, 24 hours a day and then uh, predict some changes that uh, are happening or detect them very early so that it's not even an illness yet and then uh, maybe even advise uh, or perform some changes that uh, um, enable mitigation of uh, uh, what's happening and um, might go in uh, the bad direction if not uh, treated immediately. So um, all these changes uh, uh, in the areas of uh, personalized medicine, of various engineering uh, devices, of uh, um, that allow you to track various parameters of implementation of AI, machine learning, and medicine, coupled with uh, telemedicine. Uh, I think uh, this is something that will uh, change our lives a lot in the next dec decade. Um, another thing that uh, I'm uh, pretty much excited about is the way how we are going to consume AI. Uh, AI is a service. Now we're still in the phase when... Uh, Although everyone understands uh, the importance and role of AI, it is not a commodity yet. You know, when electricity appeared, it uh, um, used to be a standalone thing, meaning that uh, there were people whose main job was electrifying something that had already been built but was not electric. So the vast majority of uh, projects uh, uh, related to electricity were uh, custom uh, projects. Every time it was a uh, new new job, and uh, each case was different. But then 
uh, we moved to the situation when you just have an electric grid, uh, electricity grid, and uh, you plug in and you get your electricity. So the majority of consumers of electricity do not really uh, think about uh, um, how it is generated and uh, they don't need to, they just need to plug in. Uh, something similar might be happening to AI in the next uh, uh, decade and we might move to a completely different um, arrangement when uh, uh, the vast majority of uh, AI applications and the algorithms will be something working on a server side and the cloud and you will just need to plug in. Um, there might be some uh, no-code, low-code ways uh, to do that or even without that. And uh, that will mean that uh, AI will uh, become a much more important part of both work and uh, private life of people. Uh, we can debate on uh, the scary parts, potentially scary parts of this development, but I definitely see a lot of uh, benefits of this uh, closer and easier coupling uh, between what humans do in their private work lives and uh, the uh, opportunities that AI brings. Well, I really love that insight of AI possibly becoming point to point, um, just like electricity. And, you know, this is something that seems very exciting, but I don't know, it also scares me a little bit. But it's been a fantastic discussion and a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, Mark. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure. So I thought that was a really interesting discussion with Mark and he's got such such a great range of expertise that I thought we were really able to get a lot out of him and something that really stood out to me was that he said that the biggest barrier for for promising research to be commercialized is really the motivations of the researchers themselves and that disparity between academic researchers and those researchers who are actually keen to commercialize um, and so I thought that that really stood out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I liked was when he was comparing the government and the private industry, and he spoke about how in the government, often you can't really fail. That's not really on on the, on the horizon. Whereas in the private industry, you do a lot of things, you fail as quickly as you can, and then you find the right solution. And then how that kind of related to starting your career in the private industry, and then being able to translate that experience into the government, because of course, um, failure is very important in order to grow. Thanks very much to Mark for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. <laughs>